Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. My name is Charlton, and I'm studying psychology first year. I think it's more or less to do with the home setup that uh, a person comes from. Like, for instance, from my family, it is very unacceptable for a person not to go to school. So, hence, like, my parents would do everything in their power to actually bring me to university, and I'm very grateful for that. But then again, when we're looking at the time that we're living in, say, like, 21st century, having a degree right now is just getting a piece of paper, basically, because there's tons of people that are out there that are sitting on degrees, but they don't actually have jobs. So, as much as getting a degree is important, we can't just override the skills part because even after you get a degree they expect you to magically have three years experience and stuff like that so it's a 50 50. In today's episode we seek insight into higher education and the role of universities in job creation in West Africa, Nigeria in specific. Our guest is Misan Riwane who is the CEO of West Africa Vocational Education, WAVE, which was launched in September 2012. Misan has a BA in economics from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard University. Welcome to our guest today, Misan Rewane, who is the director of an organization called West Africa Vocational Education. So a warm welcome, Misan. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Perhaps we could get started by giving us an introduction to WAVE. Can you tell us more about your organization, what it does, what its aims and objectives are, and perhaps you know, what inspired you to start it? Sure. So WAVE, as you rightfully said, West Africa Vocational Education was a brainchild of a few classmates of mine while I was at Harvard Business School back in 2012. I was known for being passionate about education and helping youth just maximize their potential, what I'd like to call youth development in school. And so one day at school, someone said, oh, you know, there's some other Africans. Those other guys are also interested in like social impact in Africa. Why don't you guys, you should definitely talk to them about what you're thinking about. And so we met up one day, uh, myself, Brian, Karan, initially. Karan had grown up in Ghana. Brian had grown up in Nigeria. Eventually the group expanded and there was Navid from Togo, Modupe, who had also been born in Togo, but was from Nigeria. Um, and we had another colleague who was from South Korea. And we just started whiteboarding what the big challenges in Africa that we were passionate about. Youth unemployment immediately came to the fore. The idea of this ticking time bomb of young people who are frustrated and don't see sort of a positive end in sight um, are turning to alternative, what I like to call alternative workforce programs, such as terrorist groups, crime, etc., where they will take you, they will screen you, they will train you in the trade, and they will deploy you. 
And that's essentially what we do at WAVE. We find unemployed young people who are self-motivated and have the willingness to learn and adapt, train them intensively in employability skills geared towards the service industries. And those include communication skills, problem solving, time management, uh, managing expectations, teamwork, selling skills, a bit of digital literacy, social media, etc. And we then connect them to entry-level jobs in the service industry. So that's retail, that's hospitality, financial services, health and wellness, beauty and lifestyle, industries where it's important to have the right attitude that allows you to manage the customer experience. So those are industries where globally there's an increasing trend of recognizing that academic qualifications are not the metric for whether one will succeed on those jobs. And so part of why we chose the retail and hospitality industry to start with was one, because it was one of the fastest growing job creating sectors on the continent. But secondly, it was an industry that we all felt comfortable that attitude mattered more than the technical skills that one brought to the table, because a lot of these industries are able to train you on the technical skills that are required for the job. And so our mission essentially was, how do we increase incomes for unemployed people by connecting them to economic opportunity? And we've since trained close to 700 unemployed young people in Lagos, Nigeria. We've connected 70% of them to entry-level jobs, which have then doubled and tripled their income in a lot of cases. So these are young people who are in the informal economy and were blocked out because they didn't have a college degree. They didn't have the skills that the labor market was looking for. They didn't have the work experience that would have helped them develop these skills. And they don't have the personal networks to get a foot in the door for that very first internship experience, for example. And that's usually because they come from very low income backgrounds. So these are people who are living on less than $2 a day. So that's sort of wave in a nutshell what we do. And our vision is really in the long term to have labor markets that are inclusive and don't screen people out because of the qualifications they have or don't have. It's to have educational institutions that are actually delivering on the customer promise that their customers want. And in some cases, it's I want to come here for self-discovery, to learn more about myself, to learn more about the variety of professions that are out there. But in most cases, at least in, in our part of the world, people are going to educational institutions because they want to increase their value on the market teach me marketable skills so that I can increase my earning potential. That's the promise that young Africans are sold by this idea of a university degree and, and, and our institutions are, are failing to do that. Okay, so this is quite an interesting and I think important approach that you're taking to thinking about economic futures, I guess, in Africa. So you've trained over 700 young people who otherwise would not have had access to formal or tertiary education. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. And I'm finding it also quite interesting that you're focusing on service and hospitality. So I think what you're arguing through your organization is that skills matter more than university degrees. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> and this is a really interesting approach. You know, in South Africa in the, the past year and a half, we've seen a uprising of young people arguing ferociously and very passionately about their right to access university degrees. And I think we've also seen in South Africa in specific a very strong attachment to the idea of a university degree as the way out of poverty, as the way into social mobility, to increasing and uplifting 
one's economic potential and the economic potential of one's family. And you seem to be giving us an alternative viewpoint here, that a university degree is not necessarily the only route towards doing that. So how would you respond to young people who feel that university education is kind of the holy grail, is the way out? How would you convince them that they don't need those degrees? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I convince them by convincing employers. So let's start with the labor market, right? So the young person is just responding to the symptoms that they see in the world. You look on any job website, the requirements before they talk about, oh, this person should be a problem solver and this person should be that. The requirements are usually around a degree. So this is happening even in the U.S. where you have, you know, I think it's something like two thirds of the job vacancies for an executive secretary. Um, an assistant, administrative assistant, requires someone to have a degree, and that's today. Whereas two-thirds of the existing population of executive secretaries do not have a degree. So you are seeing this movement of up-credentialing where the labor market is demanding degrees as a minimum entry requirement because it's the one thing they can measure. Do you have it or do you not? And then they are using that as a proxy to say, oh, if this person's gone to university, then they must know how to solve my problems creative thinking ability, adaptive thinking. They must know how to communicate effectively. They must, you know, have good teamwork skills. And that's not the case. So employers are using the wrong proxies and that's sending the wrong message to these young people. So I don't even start by blaming the young person. I I speak to older people here who are in their 30s and 40s who haven't gone to college and still say, you know, before I die, what will make me feel like I've succeeded is if I go back to college and get a degree. And so they're they're saying this because the society has started to look down on people who don't have a degree. But let's be honest, are our universities teaching us what employers really want, which is what we're saying, which is the skills? They're not. So you can go ahead and get a degree if you need to check a box to get into the labor market. But let's be very clear that when you are now in that labor market pool and you're competing with everyone else, the folks who are getting hired, it's not because of the degree. It's because of the degree plus something. And the thing that most employers are looking for and most of the right employers that you want to work with have already realized is that soft skills and attitude matter. If someone is willing to learn, I can teach them the technical skills required for this job in X amount of time. We've been to the top airlines in the world. We've been to the top hospitality and and retail institutes in the world. You know, everything from the Four Seasons to Hotel to Disneyland to JetBlue to Southwest. These are, you know, airlines that are known for being cutting edge in terms of the service they provide and, and how well they're doing. And they hire for attitude first. And they're able to train everyone on the technical skills in a very discreet um, amount of time. So young people I'm advising, think about earning while you learn. So if you're in the university classroom and you are learning academic knowledge, be sure that you are learning the skills that employers want. So those are soft skills that you're usually learning outside of the classroom, if we're honest. You are exposing yourself to alternatives like online education, distance learning, MOOCs, etc., that are going to give you more marketable skills. And for the 90% or so, at least in some countries like mine, who may not be able to go to university, one, they can't afford it, and two, there are just not enough places. So your, your point around access to education is, is taken in, in a country like mine where there just aren't enough university slots, even if we wanted to. Um, let's be mindful that 
you're going to have to go into the workplace one day. What matters in terms of bargaining power, earning potential, ability to actually rise up through the ranks when you do start the job are these skills. I think you're making a very pragmatic set of arguments here. And I actually think what you're getting at and perhaps what your organization is kind of capitalizing off is this disjuncture between how a university education sees itself and what kinds of workers the employers and the job market out there are looking for. And I think this is especially the case for kind of critical social sciences, humanities type degrees, right? Because there are many degrees that universities offer that are very practical. Medicine, social work, engineering, right? All of these kinds of degrees are incredibly practical in that when students graduate with them, they, they have a certain unique set of skills that they otherwise wouldn't have. Yes. But, I, you know, I, I myself teach in the humanities and media studies, and often my students want those practical skills. They kind of expect me to teach them how to do something. But what we tend to teach them is how to think critically about society. So they come up with a degree that's expanded their thinking, expanded their ways of looking at the world, their ability to effect social change or to think critically about questions of justice and power. But, you know, they don't necessarily know how to put a CV together or how to keep a customer happy or how to write up a press release, for example. And there is that gap between their qualification, their knowledge and what an employer wants them to do. Let me even just interject there. If you are doing what it is that you just said that you do, then you're probably in the 1% of African higher education institutions. Because at least in Nigeria, where I am from and live, universities are not teaching that. Secondary schools are not teaching that. They're not teaching anyone how to think critically. We are still in a rote system. So you have people who will go to universities, listen to lectures, copy notes, churn out those notes back into the exam, have not learned how to think, how to adapt. So you get onto the first job interview and let's say for some reason you get the job, maybe you have a network in, 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 into the system. You don't even know how to learn what you don't know. You don't know how to find out information. You don't know how to communicate what you know and what you don't know. So if you don't know how to learn, if you don't know how to think, then you're, you're dead in the water. You're a static individual. So even if you've taught a young person how to think critically and you haven't taught them about CV skills or how to write a press release or some of the technical skills that you're talking about, but other degree institutions, um, as long as you know how to learn, you will be fine. My economics degree from Stanford did not teach me, I mean, fine, it taught me basic economic theory and how to analyze, but in terms of the technical skills, on my first job, we spent the first week on the job learning the technical skills required to be a management consultant. Excel, PowerPoint, how do you make presentations, um, you know, how do you do research, primary research, secondary research, etc. And in a week, we were good to go. And that's because we knew how to learn. So we were able to take the information, the new information we were introduced to in that first week and then hit the ground running and then be able to adapt and learn on the job, take in new information, synthesize it, reiterate your, your, your way of doing things and, and become better. But our institutions on this part of the world, at least I, I, I can almost confidently speak for all of West Africa, are not doing this. Can we talk more about that? I think it's really interesting that a, that a dynamic, self-starter, clearly highly intelligent and motivated person like yourself, you chose to go and study abroad. So you did your first degree at Stanford, then you went on to do an MBA at Harvard. And these are both very prestigious institutions, globally recognized. What you're kind of suggesting is the failure of the African university. 
And I think these are really important questions for us to grapple with. So, you know, why do so many Africans like yourselves choose to study abroad? And where do you think the African university, and I know that's a huge generalization, but in your experience, where do you think the African university is falling short? And how do you think they could bridge the gap? I mean, I guess the first question is related to your second question, which is, People are going to study abroad when they can and even when they cannot afford it because they see that the system is so broken. So in a country like Nigeria, the system is so broken that Nigerians will leave and go to Ghana or will leave and go to Togo or will leave and go to Cote d'Ivoire because they know that the institutions there are even better than what we have. And, and this is, quote unquote, the giant of Africa. And what do you even mean by better? It may not be that the faculty is better. It may just be that I can actually get my product, i.e. the product that I'm purchasing, which is a four-year degree, I can actually get it in the four years because there are still lots of institutions here where the system is on strike. Teachers are either striking, students are striking, and so people are not in school. I just ran into one of our alumni who came through WAVE, worked for a year, gained some work experience, saved some money, and then has gone into you know what you'd call a fourth or fifth tier university or you know institution in, in, in Nigeria here, and they're on strike. And so he's home indefinitely. And I said, instead of sitting at home doing nothing, come and intern at WAVE. Come and continue learning the skills that actually do matter so that when you leave from this four-year degree, or it may take you five, six years at the, at the rate we're going, you at least have some skills that are marketable. So why are young people leaving the shores of our continent to go to other countries and, and in most cases not actually coming back? It's because the system is failing to deliver on what it promised. So when I think about primary schools, primary education, your customer promises to teach me how to read, how to write, numeracy skills, and how to solve problems. It's to teach me social skills. How do I play nice with others? How do I become self-aware, emotional intelligence? Are our primary education institutions delivering on that? Maybe I'll give them, if we have a scoring of high, medium, low, maybe I'll give them a medium uh, at best. Secondary school, what's the customer promise there? Same, same things from, from the basic education, but you're then exposing me to a breadth of career options, of, of, of vocations, of professions, the sciences, the arts, exposing me to that in junior secondary school so that I get an understanding of what I have a flair for and interest in. And then in senior secondary school, allowing me then to quote unquote specialize. Am I going the arts route, liberal arts, or am I going the science route? While I'm doing that, I'm also self-discovering in terms of extracurricular activities, languages, etc. The social aspect of the institution, besides the functional, which has exposed me to different vocation, profession, career paths, or, or academic tracks, give me the social element of things, give me the emotional elements of things, confidence building, speaking up in class, etc. Are our secondary institutions doing well in that? I'd probably give us a low if I'm going high, medium, low, low rating. And then again, only, you know, 50 to maybe 66% of our young people are actually enrolling in secondary school. Now you get to the tertiary where enrollment rates are, you know, anything from 5 to 10% across most of the continent. We're talking about a very small population. So my argument, my big, my big thesis is really a lot of the life skills that people need to learn, the burden should fall on secondary schools to do that. Because in the absence of having enough university places for everybody, secondary schools need to be sufficient enough to teach me to be ready for the world of work and ready for life. Why are people leaving as I did even at the end of secondary school to go and do, I did two more years of additional secondary education in A-levels in the UK before I went off to the US because you still feel that you come out of secondary school and you don't know how to think critically. You don't know how to adapt. Um, 
to new circumstances. You have just learned how to take information from a teacher, not think about it in terms of an application context. How do I take this information? What are the big insights from it? And how do I apply it to a new area of problem or a new area of, of thought? And that's what we call the rote learning, etc. In our Nigerian universities, and I would argue in a lot of our West African institutions, and you know, some I, I generally still see, you know, some really solid institutions in Uganda and Kenya. So I won't even generalize for East Africa, but in a lot of our institutions here, we're just not doing that. And the challenges are: you have teachers who don't have the right incentives to teach the right thing. You have teachers who don't even know that the world has evolved. So when I look at some of the top universities in Nigeria still, you've got professors who are in their 70s who are still teaching things the way they've been teaching it for the last 30 to 40 years. They haven't imbibed the idea of the university evolving. Amphitheaters, the way our classrooms are set up, the way students are encouraged to interact with each other has remained static. If you look at the innovative things that have happened in education, at least in other parts of the world, the, the facilitator is not a lecturer. You're now a guide on the side rather than a sage on a stage. The professor still standing in front of you and telling you this is what is, and you write it down and you come back and you give it to me at the end of the term, that's obsolete and, and useless. Now it's you're facilitating learning and learning is coming from multiple directions and, and stimuli. It's coming from your classmates and interacting with them and discussion-based learning. It's coming from action-based learning out in the real world where you're taking some of the theory that you've learned and you're applying it either in your community or in an internship or on a job or in projects. It's teamwork, you know, learning from Google and researching your, your secondary research online. It, it's all of that. And our schools here are just not doing that. Uh, we hire people who've all gone to Nigerian universities in our organization. And, you know, a third of our team is our alumni who haven't gone to university. And these are people who are successful in our organization because they've self-directed their learning all their lives. They've realized that what I'm getting from school cannot be everything. And so they've gone out and they've exposed themselves to learning and education outside of the classroom. And that's why they are where they are today, regardless of the system, not because of it. Absolutely. I have a, a question about something you said a little earlier. You, you mentioned that Nigerian universities are often on strike. For the benefit of our listeners, many of whom may not understand much at all about the West African education system or Nigeria in specific, could you explain to us just a little bit more about those strikes? What motivates them? What are the concerns? What are the issues that are being brought into the spotlight by those strikes? And are they from staff or students or both? If you could just enlighten us a bit on that, we'd really appreciate it. Sure. So what's happened is in the last 10 to maybe 15 years, just, just about when I left, actually, when I left Nigeria, I think some very smart and passionate and motivated people realized the gap in the system. Because there were so many strikes, people started setting up private universities so that people could, you know, the job you're trying to do when you go to a private university in Nigeria is I want to graduate on time in four years. And so those guys tend to do a better job. So a lot of what I'm talking about is more of the public institutions, which are still majority of the institutions that are educating the majority of Nigerians. And I, and I think that's the same across West Africa as well. You've got these private institutions that have come up recently, but they're not affordable by most of the 70 percent of the population that needs to, to, to go to university. So people are still going to the public institutions. Now, in the public institutions where the strikes are happening, where people are delayed, it's on both sides. So... On the faculty side, on the administrative side, they are struggling with a lack of resources, lack of financial resources in terms of their compensation, um, lack of resources in terms of what we need to invest in to make our 
working environments more productive. Um, you're talking about archaic equipment when it comes to the science side. You're talking about archaic materials when it comes to the liberal arts side. On the student side, strikes you know are, are about fees. And, and that's, that's the sad thing because I sit back and I look at it from just a basic economic view. If value is being created and I need to invest in, in the educational institution, the money must come from somewhere. Government says it doesn't have enough money, so it's not paying. And, and therefore, the product you're offering is suboptimal. And then the student is saying, well, why should you be increasing fees when you're giving me this suboptimal product? So I was talking to one of my colleagues yesterday, knowing that I was going to have this conversation tomorrow. And he's graduated from one of the top institutions here in Nigeria. And I said, well, why do the students go on strike? Because I always hear about the, the strikes that get covered on the news here are you know, the teachers because, hey, nothing can happen. Then the teachers aren't coming in and, and the school is just permanently shut. When the students are going on strike, they find quicker ways to, to appease them. And sometimes it's, it's not that they've actually met their demands. It's that they've paid off some of the student union leaders and they've just tried to calm them down. But on the student side, they grew up listening to their parents and they listen today to their professors talk about how these institutions 40 years ago were beacons of academic excellence globally. And so, you know, they, they had better faculty, they had better um, administration, they had better dormitories, etc. And so they hear about how things were greater back then. And the university system was free back then. Because, of course, you know, the Nigerian post-colonial transition, we would educate our best and our brightest. And it was at almost zero cost to them. So then they are now finding themselves in 2016, 40 years later, and the institutions are crappier and they're paying more. <laughs> so they're on strike saying we're not going to adhere to the increase in fees because we don't think the money is going to actually go into this. We think it's going to get siphoned off into other people's private pockets. We're not seeing the benefits every time you jack up the fees. But on the institution side, you can almost sympathize with them because the institutions aren't getting enough money from the government to pay their salaries, let alone to invest in any capital infrastructure. And so they have to jack up the fees to get even just some money to keep the lights on. So you're almost at an impasse. That's what happens. And so the best and the brightest teachers then go to private universities locally or they go abroad. The best and the brightest students then go to the private universities or they go abroad. I'm not, not the best and the brightest, sorry, the ones who can afford it. <laughs> the best and the brightest students who cannot afford it end up being in those institutions. And I dare argue that some of the best and the brightest who cannot afford it just actually wisen up and say, you know what, I'm going to go work for a few years, get some real experience, save up some money so that eventually I can go to an institution that will actually add value. And that's some of what I try to encourage young people to do in some of these articles that say, look, if you realize that the institutions are broken, don't go to a suboptimal institution. Work, save up money, either go to a national open university where you can continue to learn in school, but you're working and gaining real experience and, and saving up money. Or you save up enough money and then go to a better institution. What you've just described about the public university sector in Nigeria, that it's kind of woefully underfunded by government and they try to make up their income through increasing student fees is so very similar to what we're experiencing right now in South Africa. I'm sure many listeners will have noticed those similarities. It sounds like a really challenging scenario. And what is a bit worrying about it, or very worrying about it, is that it seems that it's the students and the staff, the academic staff who suffer, who suffer the most. It's precisely that. It's, um, you know, um, there's people who can't afford to go abroad just because, you know, even if you can afford the tuition, there's a cost of living, etc. Or you want to go abroad and you can't afford it, but you don't get a visa or you don't get into the schools over there. So locally, there are people who are willing to pay for higher quality education. 
And so they started setting up these institutions. The challenge is, you know, they didn't want to invest in very capital intensive degree paths. So you won't find a private university here um, teaching medicine. You won't find a lot of them teaching um, in majorly capital intensive, so like sciences, physics, etc. It ends up being very skewed towards liberal arts because that's lower capital infrastructure required. And so that's the challenge. But there are lots of young people who could have done really well in the STEM fields, but they end up doing a liberal arts degree because they needed to go to a private university because they needed to graduate in four years. So I'd say those are just some of the downsides. Poorly regulated as well. So the government's not regulating them in any way. So they're teaching what they're teaching. In some cases, some of them are not even accredited by any international standards. So national accreditation, a lot of things can get done here without actually having met the true requirements. So that's also something that's questionable. A new university springs up, they got their paperwork very rapidly. You can connect the dots and fill in the blanks there, but it's not always that they met the right standards. Those sound like quite serious downsides. It it makes me quite concerned about the future of higher education in Africa. I mean, not to suggest that in every country in Africa, we'll be facing the same challenges as Nigeria and South Africa. Of course, each country has its own unique history, its own unique kind of politics and economics. But it does make me wonder about, you know, is there a role for a public university on the continent? If we see, you know, public universities as tasked with producing the professionals that we need in order to develop and improve and stabilize our economies, to produce the doctors and nurses and engineers that we need. Are we looking at a future where it's all private, profit-oriented universities who are offering, you know, liberal arts degrees? And, And there's nothing wrong with a liberal arts degree. It's just that we need those as well as all of the other professions, right? What do you think the future of the public university is in, in Africa in general or in Nigeria in specific? I was in Switzerland last month for, uh, it's called the VPET Congress. So it's Vocational and Professional Education and Training Congress. And it happens in Switzerland because they are sort of world class. I think they're probably top three, top four in terms of their vocational and professional education. But they have a 5% unemployment rate. And I think they're one of very few countries that have the same unemployment rate across the general population and across young people. So their youth unemployment rate is also 5%. Sure, you can argue very different country, population-wise, dynamics, etc. But the critical part of their success that they try to, to share with the world is this concept of the dual track system. And initially, before this conference, I thought that dual track just meant that as most Swiss people I know, most Germans I know, everybody sort of, you can do an academic and a vocational. So it's very much encouraged that you have an academic degree and a vocational degree, or you can just stick to one one of the other tracks. But what dual track actually means for them is that the private sector and the public sector are working hand in hand to educate people. So one of the schools we went to, it's funded by the private sector and the public sector. So you go to school three days a week and you're learning the theory of things. I mean, these are, you know, 16 to 18 year olds. You're learning the theory part of engineering or whatever STEM subject, or even if it's liberal arts, you're learning the theory. And then you're then spending two to three days a week working. So We saw this in banks where if it's liberal arts and it's financial services or it's economics you're studying, you're in school three days a week. And then you're working in the UBS, United Bank of Switzerland, for example. You're working there three days a week. So you're gaining practical experience. So you come out 
in four years and you compare yourself to an African graduate who only knows about, you know, theory and academic knowledge and maybe has not done it in what we call here an industrial attachment, which sometimes happens in um, some of the STEM subjects where you have to do one year working and the school doesn't always help you organize that, you might have to find it on your own. But a lot of our four-year graduates here will come out and have no work experience. These guys have been getting both based on this dual track institution. Employers decided long ago that they don't want to just be consumers of skill, i.e. we consume whatever the educational institutions have churned out. We want to be producers and consumers of skill. So we want to influence what is happening on the production line in terms of skills and the young people that are going to come out into the labor force. And so we're going to be hand in hand involved, both from a financial investment perspective, from equipment and capital infrastructure, from the faculty side. And we're going to provide young people with both the theory and the practical, a la what we, the economy, private sector, want. And then the public sector is going to be responsible on the same side, infrastructure, investment, faculty, etc. And that's why it's called dual track. Everyone's involved. Is there not then a danger of universities becoming kind of glorified training academies for the private sector when in fact our role should be sometimes challenging, critiquing the private sector? That's why it's hand in hand, right? So you always have, if it's just not a glorified training center, then that's when the private sector alone is involved. And that's when they just set up their own thing and like, peace out. The student can come here five days a week and learn exactly what we want them to learn. But when it's done hand in hand in that way, it's you are learning from a theoretical standpoint as well as a practical standpoint. Yes, there are influence and conversations on both sides, but that's why both sides have to come to the table with equal footing. You can't say, oh, we're the government and we don't have enough money, so you, the private institution, come and take over running our university. We'll call it the Nestle University, and you just you, you do what exactly you want. As I said, every institution has to be very clear on its customer promise. Are we here for self-discovery and challenging critical thought, or are we here to help you be more marketable? And every customer has the right to decide which they want. So when people come to WAVE, for example, there are a host of life skills that we started off teaching. We taught negotiation skills, cross-cultural competence. There are a lot of things that we just wanted young people to know because that's the right thing. You should have a lot of these life skills and self-discovery. But when we realized, hey, we, we teach our program is very intensive. So it's three weeks, 150 hours. We had to make choices. What was most essential for the young person to do the job that they wanted to do? And the job that the young people that come to us want is I need a secure source of steady income or rather a steady source of secure income, however you want to put it. But for them, the most important thing is I need income and I need to be steady and I need to be secure. So quote unquote, I need a job. Mm. So when they come to us, yes, I'd like to learn negotiation. I'd love to sit and talk about the ethics of, you know, how to do business. I'd love to think about cross-cultural competence and how do I deal with different people in the world? And I'd like to think about self-actualization. But right now I need a job and I need it in a month. So give me the most essential skills that are going to get me there. And so we ended up having to say, look, what are the three to five most important things you need to know? And that's how we boiled it down to effective communication, problem solving, time management, managing expectations, and teamwork. There are lots of other things that we trickle through, but the core of our curriculum is really those those five things. And yes, you can call us a glorified training school for the labor market, but if our customer, which is a young person who's living on $2 a day and wants to get to $6 a day, tells us that that's what they want, we have to also recognize that. And I thought that it would be bit patronizing and patriarchal on our part to come back and say, hey, we know what's best for you and we're going to teach you about all these other things. That being said, our real focus is how do we teach you how to think and learn on your own 
so that you can keep doing that for the rest of your life. And if one day you decide, I'm actually ready for self-discovery, for thinking about self-actualization and what do I want to put out into the world, and I want to go into this other kind of institution or I want to reflect on it on my own, you at least have the thinking capacity to do that. You have unlocked what primary school was meant to help you unlock and what secondary school was meant to help you unlock and what universities were meant to help you unlock never did. I think that's a really compelling argument. You've published a, an article on Quartz.com with a very controversial headline. Well, some may think it controversial. Some may see it as sensationalist. That university degrees are not the answer for Africa's unemployed youth. And I think you've kind of explained to us a little bit why you've made that argument. But there's something really important there, I think, that although universities have a really important place in Africa's development, you seem to be claiming that they're, they're not the only route to economic upliftment and the improvement of people's lives on the ground. To be sure, I'm not saying that young people shouldn't get degrees. I'm saying what it is that you've just nicely paraphrased, which is don't put all your eggs in that basket because you're in for a very rude awakening when you come out at the end of your four years and realize that the average unemployment rate for a graduate is five years. Because there was a study done by the British Council, I think it was two years ago, and I think South Africa was part of that study, so was Nigeria, so was Kenya, I think possibly Ghana. And that was staggering for me. So if you are trying to get a job, get an income, start working your way up a professional ladder, then don't put all your eggs in that basket. There are other ways. And I think what's the saddest thing for me, and, and the biggest opportunity as well, is that people discount this idea of life-wide learning. The young people who thrive in our program that we select are the people who have engaged in life-wide learning, whether they knew it or not, through the adversity that they face through poverty, through losing a parent, through being a single mother, through poverty and through being evacuated from their homes at a young age, through all that adversity that happens in life that you take for granted and you pray your way out of every night you've actually learned a lot of skills that employers actually are looking for. Persistence, perseverance, resilience, whatever you want to call it, grit, the ability to just persevere, or the ability to be motivated to wake up in the morning every day and have a goal that you just keep keeping on towards. Um, that, like I said, willingness to learn, that integrity and accountability that just comes from having a moral compass and a principle that says this is what I'm, I stand for in the world. All of that is life-wide learning. And lifelong and life-wide learning are so underlooked because everyone's just focusing on that degree. Let me just go through these four years. I don't care if the institution passes through me or I pass through the institution. I just need to get that paper at the end of the four years and take it to an employer and say, here, hire me. And even if you do get hired just because you have that sheet of paper, you won't thrive on the job if you don't have these other things. If you just don't know how to learn and adapt, that's really it. And I think your advice about not putting all your eggs in one basket is appropriate for individuals who might be listening, but maybe also for governments and public sectors that, yes, we need strong, functioning, independent public universities, but we also need other ways of helping people to improve their lives, to find jobs, to create employment for themselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The degree is not necessarily the only answer. Um, that's very interesting that you talk about it because we're in a position at Wave now where we're starting to think of what is the best way to scale our impact? Is it to build more Wave academies that bridge more young people who are excluded from the formal economy, bridge them into the system? Or is it to influence system change, which is, you know, like you said, how do you convince governments not to put all your eggs and resources into this one basket of, oh, we need to strengthen our universities? What does strengthening our universities need to look like? How can you turn secondary schools into the same functional 
institutions that could do what the university does, uh, or, or at least what university, one of the things the university should do, which is how do you just prepare people for the world of work, for the life ahead? And if you can incorporate some of these skills into our secondary institutions, that means that 66% of your young people at least would now be getting access to this very critical set of skills. I, I, my, my to be sure for, the, for this interview is really to be sure our universities are critical. They're critical to our development in Africa. But let's think about how to strengthen them and, and, and create more linkages to what the economy needs and what the young people that are investing their time and their, their savings into these institutions, what they need as well from the sense of life skills, lifelong learning, the ability to learn and adapt, and then what the market needs in terms of marketable skills. So South Africa is not alone. It's struggling with big questions about how public universities are funded and how university degrees relate to employability, to skills, to socioeconomic development. It's been so valuable to hear some perspectives from our peers up in Nigeria. Let's hope that we can continue these intra-continental dialogues as we continue to think about higher education in our own countries. and I'm studying Biological Sciences, BSc. It is easier to get a job if you already have the skills, um, whereas when you're in university, it gives you that higher level of thinking, which, which only a university can give to you. And I think that that can help you with not only work, but adult life as well. So I do think that that is better, and it just it does make you more qualified. Um, so you, you'll always do your job to the best of your ability. They do prepare you for the outside world, but not for the everyday stuff, so like how to do your taxes, that kind of stuff. How do you go through life, that kind of life, yeah. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAWU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asawu.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Mbenyane. Thanks to Misan Ruane, Charlton and Daniela for their time, as well as David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.